This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we explore some of the problems with global learning metrics from the perspective of teacher unions. In particular, we look at outcomes-based approaches to international education development. The outcomes-based approach is saying we're no longer interested in you know, how you make the cake. We're no longer interested in the ingredients. We're not interested in, in the process by which you do it. We're only interested in one of a series of measures on the other end of whether or not your cake tastes good. Such an approach uses global learning metrics to quantify supposed outcomes of education. But as a result, education is reduced and simplified. Are, is, are the math scores going up or are they going down? Are the reading scores going up or are they going down? Nothing else matters, you know, and everybody else who says it does are making excuses for the fact that they can't make the math scores go up indefinitely, which they, by the way, can't. Um, but, you know, who cares because we have to suspend disbelief in a lot of these, these, these debates. My guest today is David Edwards, Deputy General Secretary of Education International. Education International is the global federation of teacher unions. David Edwards, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having me. What is an outcomes-based approach to education? Outcomes-based approach is sort of one of those newfangled policy terms uh, that's emerged in recent decades. Really, it's not very much different than the idea that we had an outcome we're going for. There's an objective in our mind, and we're trying to achieve that with our students. But when you apply the sort of economic principle of outcomes to education policy, and you bring educational investors into it, then what it has to do is it has to, it basically is an approach that says if we put money in the front into education, we want to see outcomes in terms of, and generally they're talking about learning outcomes, we want to see test scores hit certain cut scores. So we want to see, see a cut score. So it's an approach to education where the value of education is quantified through an, an outcome, through an outcome uh, measure. So. Outcomes are always, it, it, they have to be measurable, is that the issue? Yeah, outcomes have to be measurable. Um, outcomes tend to have to be sort of simple, and in, in the sort of global parlance, they have to be easily communicated. Um, they have to be things um, that, you know, you can control for a lot of, they, those who, who are in favor of them say you can control for a lot of intervening variables and things like that. So if it's an outcome on, generally it's on learning. I mean, we also have health outcomes, right? We have outcomes on well-being, and we'll get to, I think we'll get to that a little bit later. But the, the outcomes-based approach is saying we're no longer interested in, you know, how you make the cake. We're no longer interested in the ingredients. We're not interested in, in the process by which you do it. We're only interested in one of a series of measures on the other end of whether or not your cake tastes good. What would be an outcome for education? I mean, is it, is it just test scores, or are there other outcomes that these investors in education are looking for? Um, well, you know, because of what's going on around the, the Sustainable Development Goals, there are a lot of different outcomes, and the Sustainable Development Goals themselves have, you know, sort of taken an outcomes-based approach. So some of them are gender parity, are the same amount of girls and boys is likely to be in school, enrolled in school. So that would be an outcome um, of any kind of policy. 
it's, it's generally very simplified. It tries to think about it in purely technical terms in something that is generally much more of a political issue, whether or not girls have access, um, whether or not women have the right to speak, to participate, what it looks like in terms of labor laws, yada, yada, yada. But that's, that's, not, interested for, that's not interesting for folks that just want to focus on the outcome. Um, and they always talk about a laser-like focus on outcomes. And so what do they miss by focusing only on outcomes? They, 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 they miss huge issues around equity. They miss huge issues around opportunity. Um, they miss huge issues around the different kinds of processes that to them are inside the black box and are because of the assumptions that are built into their modeling, right? That this is an economic and econometrics approach. So they make certain assumptions about human behavior, human motivation, um, what the purpose of education is, who the benefit beneficiaries are, whether they're individual beneficiaries or social beneficiaries. They tend to see it primarily as the individual beneficiaries. So one, they miss those wider sort of social benefits that, that accrue to the society um, around having an educated um, population, uh, educated citizenry. Uh, um, they miss the different types of ways that teachers uh, actually teach, uh, how they instruct, how they um, tailor instruction, how they make real-time decisions with students based on their needs, their styles, information that they have from them, uh, a whole variety of things that they don't know. Um, and basically what they do is they want to connect a dollar of investment with a number on the other end, and generally that tends to be a test score. And for those of us who work in education, that becomes very frustrating because um, those test scores are just a snapshot of one thing. Many times there's cultural bias built into those. Um, many times the child maybe didn't eat. Maybe the, you're doing it at an age where most kids were pushed out of school or there's some sort of, where there wasn't a secondary education available to them. Um, so they, behind the whole thing, there's a premise that access has more or less been dealt with. Um, everyone's in school or everyone has the opportunity to go to school. And that's just not true. It's, it's, it's completely false. And, I, and those of us who, who sort of challenge that, uh, I count myself among a, a number of people who see quality education as not just outcomes but also the inputs and the processes, feel that when you're trying to compare, you know, children that have access to, you know, the new technologies, um, all sorts of enrichment programs. They've had breakfast. They have parents who read to them, all these kinds of things. But you don't care about any of that. You only care about what happens on the other side. You stop attending to those things, and you stop dealing and making policy that works towards um, greater equity and greater uh, equality of opportunities. So you said that this outcomes-based approach is, is a fairly new policy approach. How, how did we actually get here? Like, how did it emerge to be, you know, pretty dominant in the international development world? Well, I think there's a couple streams that have sort of flowed into the delta where we find ourselves now. I mean, one of them is new managerialism, which came out of sort of the Thatcher period in time, which is a, a way of managing and a way of producing results um, that only mattered if it was something measurable, um, their smart goals, you know, simple, measurable, blah, blah, blah. And there was, there was that part of it that was influencing um, how education ministries were being advised by policymakers, how also different political parties, um, the, the, the accountability um, structures and policies that were being put in place in terms of 
how you're accountable for results. So that was coming, and that's part of new managerialism. And then it also has to do, I think, education has a sister sector, which is health. And in the global education sort of development, education policy world um, that some of us uh, live in and work in, uh, many times we hear uh, donors, these are donor agencies, so governments and generally in OECD countries, um, saying that, you know, we need to be able to say just like how many kids were vaccinated, right, in, an in, a, in a health intervention, we should be able to say how many kids um, are now literate, full stop, whatever literate means, right? It used to at one point in time mean if you can sign your name, um, how many words you can read a minute, and we, and we fight and discuss and debate what literacy is and what numeracy is. Um, and there's this group of people um, who are very well-intentioned, who think that we can attract more money to education if we get better at telling our story, if we get better at telling our case. Because, um, for example, bed nets in health, right? Uh, it became a, a delivery issue. So, so there was people that sort of constructed or conceptualized the problem in education as a delivery issue. So teachers are deliverers of content. Students process the content and what comes out the other side are outcomes. And so they were saying to us, you need to find you know, a bed net for education or a vaccine. That way we can then say, if you put a dollar in, uh, you buy this vaccine for illiteracy or for ignorance or for whatever problem you've got, because we always come to the schools to solve all of our societal problems versus the other way around. Um, and, you know, we want to see something that we can then go back to our citizens, our taxpayers, our investors and say, look, we were able to increase for every dollar, we got a rate of return of, you know, two, three, whatever it was um, in terms of the rates of return. And so that's the world that we found ourselves in. It was new managerialism. It was sort of the health uh, sector. It was the rise of the sort of big data uh, econometrics folks who came into education from the business sector and other sectors and were applying um, market-based principles and rationales to something that at one point in time, if those of us who remember Dewey, had much more to do about democracy and inclusion and socialization and transformation. And um, so that's, that's basically where we found ourselves. So is the focus on, you know, having focus on the delivery side to, to produce a particular outcome that, you know, would justify this investment. Is this why it's partly or these these this approach is partly culturally unaware because it assumes that you can basically do this same sort of delivery issue or, you know, if you perfect delivery, it can be done anywhere, regardless of context or culture or background? That's the assumption. That's the fundamental assumption that's built into the model. Um, and that's the one that we can test. Um, those of us who actually work in schools at the gra at grassroots level, um, uh, that there is some sort of global uh, approach that brain science or something else has given us to decoding and teaching literacy, uh, you know, like the four or five step process um, that, that Helena Bozzi at the World Bank or somebody would, would say, it's very easy, it's not rocket science. You can teach someone to read, you do this, you do this, you do this, and then you measure, 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 and then voila, they can read. But the trick was, for that particular example, it was about fluency. It wasn't about comprehension. 
And that's where it starts to get messy. It gets messy in all sorts of places. But it's easier to measure how many words a student can read over a given period of time than did they really get you know, the point of what they were reading? And were they able to extrapolate from that, synthesize that? Were they able to sort of use higher order thinking in terms of coming up with new learnings and, and applying those? I mean, that's, that became the sort of the holy grail of what's come to become sort of 21st century skills or, you know, there's a whole range of, of ways that people talk about this. Um, but that's hard to measure. And uh, generally my feeling on it is that the people... Um, who are with them for 180 days a year, uh, day in and day out, who know them, uh, these, these, these children are, are sort of better placed to, to say, you know, to give examples, to put quote-unquote evidence, data points, uh, however you want to, you know, conceptualize it, but, and then do this really radical thing, which I think is the difference. When teachers do assessment or teachers assess outcomes or teachers assess results or teachers assess student learning, the main purpose of it is to then feed it back into that system to improve. So this, they didn't get this. Let's try it this way. Let's try, you know, but that's not actually, I think, what's behind the outcomes-based movement globally. It's not about... It's not about improving the experience, the learning opportunities, tailoring. It's not, it's not about personalization. Um, it's, it's, it's really about control. Um, it's about having information on a, on a dashboard so that you can flip switches and see what happens. Um, and it's, it's, it's fundamentally not about improvement because if it was about improvement, then the information would feed its way back into the hands of the people that are best positioned to make decisions to improve, whether those are curriculum developers, teachers, parents, students themselves, and that's, and it's really not happening through those types of mechanisms. So what are some of the like underpinning drivers that are, that have created this sort of approach where you're saying it's not about these, you know, it's not really about learning there, there, there's other interests at play. Like, is this an issue of like privatization, like the, the business actors getting more involved in education is that one of the fundamental drivers creating this sort of you know environment that we find ourselves in i think that's a big part of it i think um you had the same people who assess and say there is a crisis right tend to be the same people who show up afterwards with an off-the-shelf solution that you can buy from them to solve your crisis and i find that to be fundamentally conflict of interest, a fundamental corruption, but it doesn't surprise me anymore. It, it really doesn't. Um, and I think education, public education, you know, um, the trillions of dollars that are there um, have been openly set, spotted by private sector globally and saying sort of that's the last frontier that we have left to commodify and to privatize. Um, and the way you do that is by saying this, the government is doing a really terrible job. The, the kids are not learning. It's a massive crisis uh, it's, and it's wasteful and it's wasting. And um, we have very easy um, ways of, you know, cutting costs and giving you these, these interventions or innovations or products that are guaranteed you know, where your money back, they're guaranteed to, to get results. And so they overpromise, and then they don't get results, 
you know, which is also the long history we can talk about. It's just the, the, it's just the road of failure. And, but the over-reliance to keep coming back to them, like some, at some point they're going to get it. You know, it was, you know, it's completely, it's completely flipped in terms of where the innovation should come from, who we should be listening to, and um, how we should be designing things um, so that students themselves can be involved in, in sort of these, these more higher order learning uh, endeavors and, uh, and, and applying them in a world that, let's face it, is, is it's pretty, uh, pretty tricky right now. It's pretty tough. It's complex. And, um, you know, helping students deal with that complexity and that ambiguity and helping them um, come to the, their own conclusions through mo- looking at multiple perspectives around um, different issues, develop the values and, and develop the skills and, and the understanding and the ability to communicate and work together and do all these things. Well, you know, the, the companies don't, even some of them say that they can do that too. Um, but I think, I think the the main feature that's new in this is that in the past, these companies um, were just trying to sell their, their goods and services to ministries. And because they embrace a certain worldview, they embrace a certain political ideology as well about what education is and how it should be best held, they're actually made their way into policy spaces where they're advising, if not writing, policies that also benefit them. So through their lobbying, through their positioning, um, they're actually influencing governments. So governments are, are just as much at fault for outsourcing their core responsibilities, but you also have these companies um, that are playing basically every side of, of a multi-sided fence in, in terms of trying to set, set the field so that you know the crisis gets uh, announced and income the consultants and income the companies and can say you know what your problem is you lack data you you're you you lack enough data points to make good policy decisions you lack a policy gps system you want to get to y you're here at x we have looked at everything we know exactly what the best intervention is what the teacher should say what the student should read you know what the tests uh, best test at the best time would be and we can do all that for you and you know you, you spend 80% of your we should also say this you spend 80% of your recurrent expenditures on those teachers and they just cause problems and they don't show up and you know they they push kids through and they just care about seat time and you know, blah, 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 blah. We, we have a cheaper way. And um, that cheaper way won't require uh, qualified, trained professionals. Now, those same people, if we look at the classes their kids are in and the schools they're sending their kids to, very different story. Now, this is we're very much have to be aware that we're talking about other people's kids, other people's children, where there's a whole different set of expectations that are available uh, at a low-cost price for them. I want to turn to teachers because you work for Education International, which is the global federation of teacher unions. And, you know, you must have seen and heard from so many teachers that have experienced changes to their profession, have been impacted in different ways as this approach has more or less gone global and, and is found so, in so many countries around the world. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the impact on teachers? Sure. Um, and it's, you know, it, it varies by degrees from country to country. Um, and 
I will say that coming out of sort of the Commonwealth Anglo world, there's a certain type of reform that has negatively impacted teachers that has been sort of um, borrowed. If you look at the policy borrowing literature, you can actually track um, where different policies get borrowed to and from, um, and you can see how it plays out in, in others. But you know, um, one of the, the more serious and I would say um, devastating uh, things that have come as a result of this is what's called value-added modeling, um, VAM and um, value-added methodology. It's, it's basically this idea that by using test scores, you can basically predict what percentage, how much of a, of a, of a teacher, how much did a teacher add value to a student's test score? So if you go back to Coleman, who was a very famous um, educational economist, sociologist, and talks about the division between how much of of education outcomes, education learning can be attributed to family, how much is it, you know, to the, the personal characteristics of the child, how much to the teachers, you know, and that back then it was, you know, 65% was outside of the school and so folks were focusing on, on, on the 35%. The VAM took it a step further and said, well, what we want to actually do is say, looking at kids, what percentage of uh, of their learning can actually be directly attributable to teachers, and then let's evaluate teachers based on that. Let's then pay them based on that. Let's make hiring and firing decisions based on that. And uh, the main problem was methodologically, it's, it's completely unsound. It's, it's toxic. The National Academies of Sciences in the U.S. came out with a statement saying, you know, we do not advise it. It is, uh, it is a toxic measure. It should not be employed. Um, and, you know, it's basically taking different kinds of assessments for different kinds of things and mixing them together. So student assessment is looking at students' learning, right? When it's done really well and informative, and it will then, I've talked about how it should inform instruction and all these kinds of things. Taking that and using that to evaluate teachers or to evaluate schools goes beyond what it was created to do. And so it actually goes goes beyond that. And um, just to say what it's done around the world where those countries that have used it, you have um, uh, teachers that were teachers of the year that were the, the, the toast of the town were winning all these awards um, in states in the U United States at the sort of the peak of the VAM movement that got a low VAM score that they were for some reason ranked in the very, very bottom in terms of their VAM score and let go and, and, that, and fired. So you have these, these award-winning teachers who their peers and their students, the, and people were outraged. They were saying, what is, what is this? Um, and the, the race to the top um, was actually in the United States. Arne Duncan's um, signature program um, actually put a lot of pressure on states to include VAM in the evaluations of teachers. And um, that also then traveled. Um, it, it traveled all over the place. Um, the, uh, the Asian Development Bank it now talks about it in terms of performance pay, uh, where you can actually measure that. But we have, we actually have a white paper we've done. We've sort of done a literature review of all the sort of analysis. It's up on our uh, educationincrisis.net website. So you can, you can see sort of um, that. But we've had teachers commit suicide over it. We have in the United States, um, because of the pressure on teachers and the 
the, the way in which these sort of test scores, everything's on teachers, right? So every teacher's responsible for everything. We have the, the highest turnover rate in the history of, of, of teaching in the United States, and we're seeing that in other countries too. People are not wanting to come into teaching. The mode is one year in terms of retention for the United States, right? Now, we, we're seeing in the UK, they're having a major teacher shortage too. Hard to attract people into teaching. Um, I mean, imagine if you had a dentist and you were going to pay that dentist on how many cavities their, the kids or the people that they, their patients had, right? That's basically on you. That's not on us. That's, we're going to pay you on cavities. You know, it's, it's, it's just fallacious thinking, but it comes from the same sectors that say, you know, if, if a, a salesman brings in X percent more sales, they should get a bonus, right? So we should pay them based on, you know, we should get the teachers that get, you know, nice bumps in test scores for kids should get, get a bonus. But not all teachers teach in subjects that are tested. So one of the things that we found out in this wacky world is that now if you're a gym teacher... Your VAM score is based on the math. How about on the math scores, right? How much control do you have on that? Did, did you count all your push-ups? Wait, you went from seven to nine. You missed eight. Oh boy, I'm going to get fired over this. You know, it's 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 ridiculous. Or when they had schools that weren't actually doing assessments, they would they would actually in Florida there was this massive Supreme Court case where they were uh, evaluating teachers from the VAM scores of a school down the road. Right? So that's just one example, but we're seeing that seep into a lot of different places. Although I have to say that I, I am a bit optimistic, a little bit optimistic on this side, because um, in the, what's called the International Summits on the Teaching Profession, which is something that EI organizes yearly, uh, annually with the OECD, where we bring together um, 25 to 30 ministers of education and union leaders, teacher union leaders in different countries to take a look at evidence and debate different policies and, and approaches in what are considered high-performing, high-equity high countries, or the Finlands and the, you know, whatever. Um, they don't use VAM. They don't even talk about it. The, the sec, it was a third summit. It was back a couple, couple years ago. You know, except for the UK, everybody else there was saying, no, 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 we would never do that. That doesn't make sense. That You wouldn't build professionalism. You don't encourage teacher learning. We actually want a much more horizontal uh, structure. We want teachers to take responsibility and accountability and be collaborating. We want to see uh, a much deeper, more long-lasting, professional uh, view on, on, on this. And um, so in OECD countries, one of the things I, 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 I get frustrated with is I feel like we've almost jumped the shark on this and we're moving towards like the newest uh, ISTP report that the OECD and EI did was, was talking about um, democratic professionalism, talking about collective autonomy, talking about professional capital and, and moving, really moving the dial and countries moving in this way, making sure that's, but in the, de in the developing countries, in the non-OECD countries, what's being prescribed is the stuff that you know, we're still going through in some countries and some have already come through and some have sidestepped completely, like the high performers. They actually never did any of this, right? Um, if you read Andy Hargreaves and Dennis Shirley's work or Passy Salberg's work, you know, there's, there is this tiny little piece of information that's kind of big in that um, the stuff that's being uh, prescribed, actually no one that has a really good system ever tried or would ever 
think to try. But this is exactly what uh, developing countries are having pushed, pushed on them in a variety of different ways. It seems like one of the, the big issues is, is about quality. Because, you know, if you're, if you're producing a widget, you can ensure quality in, you know, pretty concrete ways. But when it comes to education, the idea of quality just seems so messy and, you know, abstract and varied. So, I, I mean, it, it seems like quality becomes a big issue. Yeah, it, it, it does become a big issue. And, um, you know, for the longest time, there was a, a, a raging debate between about quality and learning, you know, um, we, we see quality as something that you actually can't pull it apart from equity. Because if, if you're not providing quality, so if you're not providing a, a, a qualified, well-trained, well-supported teacher in, a, in an environment that is equally designed to sort of maximize the, the learning and support and the opportunities, um, giving them the tools that they need, the, 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 the quality tools that they've been trained with, that they know how to use, that they've asked for, that they've, you know, um, that's sort of a, what we would call a multidimensional view of quality. And, um, you know, in a, a, what what's, uh, Gustavo Fishman calls the simplimetrified world, of simplified metrics, you know, that version of quality, you know, to some people gets eye rolls and they go, oh God, here you go again about quality is complex. And oh yeah. actually it's, can you measure it? Quality is just what comes out the other side. It's quality control. Are, is, are the math scores going up or are they going down? Are the re scores going up or are they going down? Nothing else matters, you know, and everybody else who says it does are making excuses for the fact that they can't make the math scores go up indefinitely, which they, by the way, can't. Um, but, you know, who cares because we have to suspend disbelief in a lot of these, these, these debates. Um, so quality itself has become a contested term. In, inside of uh, the Education International family, uh, we see quality used as both a weapon and a tool, um, quality assurance, quality controls. And we need, because we need really good quality, we need to make sure that students are learning, that quality is improving. That's why we need to get rid of teacher qualifications. You know, what? We really need, we really need great uh, quality. We really want the best learning. That's why we need to get rid of, uh, we need to reduce the teacher education. Huh? Uh, because quality is so important, that's why we're going to pay teachers based on test scores. Huh? You know, and you just kind of go again and again, what are you talking about? I mean, and, and it's, you know, so, so in a way, we used, quality actually became a way for us um, that had a broader notion of what I should also say is a human rights uh, approach, notion to quality um, and equity as being inseparable. Um, that you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Um, it, it's, it, it just became very frustrating. And um, we found that there was folks were saying, no, okay, we're not going to talk about quality. We're, we're negotiating declarations. I do, we negotiate a lot of declarations, okay? So you work with UNESCO, you work with the UN agencies, you get a lot of statements, you have a lot of promises. And words matter in those. And uh, the word free, it was one that was always been very hard hardly fought versus affordable. Guess who was in favor of affordable? Yeah, private sector. But, um, you know, in terms of there was a group that wanted quality taken out and just wanted it to have the word learning. And so in your mind, what's the difference between learning and quality? Um, 
Well, if we learn anything about what we engaged in as we've pursued greater quality, equity, equality, um, it's that learning is deeply personal. Learning is deeply contextual. Learning you do for a purpose. Um, learning has to do with, with the, I mean, you can say systems learn, that's fine, and, and people learn, but, but, but learning in a policy term has come to symbolize this idea that there are a lot of children who are going through school that are not learning anything. So that means they, their, their scores aren't at what, where they should be. Um, now, I also have to say, from EI's perspective, that the whole learning crisis, you know, you've heard about the 250 you know, uh, million children that are not learning at grade level. Um, this is not something new. And when it first sort of happened, uh, we at EI and, and sort of the rights-based movement, we were like, well, duh, you've basically crowded all these kids into classrooms, you've given them volunteer teachers, you, sometimes you haven't paid the teachers, and now you're saying we've got this huge problem because kids aren't learning what they should be learning. We've been saying we have a problem with literacy. We've been saying we have a problem with numeracy. So welcome to the party. Welcome to trying to... And then you go, so what are we going to do? You're going to test them? No, no, no. We already know. We know. We need to fix the system. He's like, no, we need better tests. We have a sick patient. We need more thermometers. What? And that's the sort of, that's the sort of frustrated conversations that... We don't want to be against learning, but I have, I have, we're in favor of learning. We're the learning profession, right? Um, but it's been co-opted and it's become such a sliding signifier that you actually don't know when people say, you know, I'm in favor of trying to, to really improve and deepen learning, whether what they're not really saying is, I'd really like to get some more tests. I'd really like to deploy a lot more assessments and tests. Or is it really about thinking deeply and you know, and there is a lot of people that are working on, on this uh, and trying to push the paradigm on that front. Um, I, I, again, I'm somewhat optimistic um, in some areas, but that's usually in places where the teaching profession is strong, where parents are well-informed and push back on a lot of this testing stuff, where students are informed, where um, taxpayers and, and voters are informed and have the, the power to kind of push back. In those countries where where they're not quite there. Um, this is new, um, and particularly in, in um, some developing countries. Uh, a lot of these sort of corporate reformers who say they're bringing greater learning um, don't have the sort of countervailing weight of civil society to kind of push back and say, whoa, 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 who's learning? You're defining that for us? What? You're dangling this above my minister's head? You're saying my right to education depends on whether or not we hit a cut score as a country or, or what a donor wants. I mean, if I can jump, I think, just for a second, one of the things um, that the movement globally has felt frustration with, now this is, these are teachers and, and, and students' unions, students' movements, civil society movements, is what we were calling donor-driven policymaking. That meant that the donors were, were setting conditions. Um, for those of you who weren't familiar with the sort of um, structural adjustment period that, that many countries went through in the 80s, uh, the World Bank uh, put a lot of conditions on their loans that forced, um, and the IMF did as well in terms of wage cap bills, saying that you couldn't raise wages 
You know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't hire this many teachers, you know. So there's now a new form of conditionality, um, which is then tied to the sort of outcomes-based, results-based, performance-based uh, paradigm. And they're saying, okay, we'll give you X amount of money, but if you get the test scores up for this particular group, then you'll get the rest of the money. And in the donor-driven world, I think one of the main, one, there's lots of issues, okay? But if I was to pick one that I think you, you can understand is, if, if you say to you can game any system, right? So if, if someone, if, if the incentives are such that um, I need to hit a cut score so you give me money so my system operates, I'm going to pick the easiest cut score that I can find. I'm going to pick the least risky thing. Guess who I'm not going to focus on? The most marginalized, the girls, the rural, the indigenous speaker. You know, those, those folks I'm not going to, to worry about. I might even push them out or tell them to stay home on the day of the test, right? Which we know has happened um, in a lot of countries because of the way in which the perverse incentives are built in. But even more than that, you get this um, sense that if we choose only the easiest thing, um, in terms of in, to invest in as, as a developing country minister of education. And I serve on the, the board of the Global Partnership for Education. And we hear and I, I interact with a lot of ministers of education from around the world. Um, and they say, well, you know, if they're going to give me money and they want to see a bump in the math scores or a bump in the reading scores. Um, sorry, sorry, Dave, but guess where we're not putting the money? We're not going to put it into teacher education because we're not going to see those results, because the donors want to see something within a year, two, three years, a horizon in education. Anybody that does education research knows that's ludicrous, but that's where they want to see those quick quick wins, those quick gains, and then they can sort of um, you know, crowd in more, more resourcing and more funding to that thing. But what you end up doing is saying, well, where can I get a quick win? Well, here's actually a teacher training program that goes on for three weeks, where we'll give all teachers iPads and we will tell you, um, we'll have an eight-hour day where the kids will practice taking math tests. Your teacher doesn't even have to, I mean, they should have a pulse, you know. Um, a little more than that we're not worried about. They should be able to at least read an iPad. The iPad will tell you minute one, uh, you know, erase the board, minute two, walk around the class, minute three, test question one, put in the answers. Those get then shot up to wherever Cambridge or whoever is in, in, in control of the software. Um, and, you know, that ends up becoming uh, the, the, the cheaper way of, uh, of dealing with it. So this is it. It's, it's, a, it's a deep problem, and particularly when those companies that then produce that then get in cahoots with cahoots. I use the word cahoots. My grandfather would be proud. Um, you know, are, are aligning themselves with donors who want to see ministries actually pick these off-the-shelf you know, interventions versus um, the sort of more systemic, um, system-strengthening investment in teacher education that, guess who's doing? High performers. But that's a little inconvenient fact. And, you know, we live in this sort of dual world where we have expectations for our kids and our kids' rights and expectations for other kids and, and their rights. Well, David Edwards, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much, Will. David Edwards is Deputy General Secretary of Education International in Brussels. 
He will present some of the ideas discussed today at the CIES Symposium in November. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straupau, Eric Lehman, Dee Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monaghan and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that the opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalisation and Education SIG, which takes no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com.